Let's pray. Father, you are sovereign over all things. You are sovereign over my mouth and my mind. So take over my mouth and my mind as I preach your word and take over everyone's hearts and everyone's minds so that we would become amiable and soft in reception of your truth. Um, We do trust you. Your word tells us that if we do what you say and trust you, you will act. So we depend on your spirit to act here this morning to not only teach your word, but to cause us to receive your word and to be convicted by your word, Lord. So for each person here this morning who comes to church with different things on their mind, different experiences, different struggles, different trials, different things that are happening today, this week in their life, whether it's a burden or a joy or somewhere in between, just pray that as they come here to your word, all of us would be able and willing to lay down at your feet any of our cares or worries or concerns. And that as you pick them up, you would show us that it's Christ who conquers those concerns. It's our victory in Christ that allows us to come before you. And you lift us up with your love and your grace and you lead us to righteousness. So remove from our minds all of the distractions and create for us a clear path of righteousness that we can walk in today. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So last week we examined the qualifications for elder in the church and really uh, today, those, today we're only, only gonna examine three and last week we did 11. So um, I don't know how I got through all 11, but I did. And uh, there's an interesting reality, though. You've got 11 qualifications and then three. Why are we separating them so drastically? Why not do like, you know, seven and seven? There's 14 qualifications. Well, the first 11 qualifications are simply listed by Paul. And the final three, these ones we're going to cover today, are explained by Paul. So in these final three qualifications, Paul includes the reason for why their qualifications. He doesn't do that with the other 11. So just as the first 11 though, these three qualifications should be the aim of every man who aspires to eldership in the church. And the underlying Christ-likeness and the Christ-like character that creates this kind of man are the same Christ-like characteristics that all believers should strive to me. So like, this is an important reality for all of us to grasp. Paul's talking about elders. He's clarifying what kind of men are fit to lead his body, to lead his church, what kind of men are fit to lead the bride of Christ into sanctification so that they would be, Ephesians 5, sanctified by the word and become holy and without blemish or stain and presentable to God as Christ-like. Like that, that's Jesus's responsibility to his bride, the church, just as, it is, just as it is the husband's responsibility to his wife, 
That's Paul's explanation in Ephesians 5. And now the elder, who is not a father to the church or a husband to the church, because God is the father of the church and Christ is the husband to the church, so the elder is not those things. But he fills in for the father and for the son in a temporal sense on earth. And the elders are meant to be primarily shepherds, which is also Christ's primary role with the church um, is to shepherd the people of God into him. And so the elder's responsibility in a church is to shepherd the flock of God into Christ, toward Christ, into Christ's likeness. Uh, yet that, those men who lead the church as elders, they themselves are not a father and they are not um, a husband to the church, but play a similar role. And what is so magnificent about these texts is that though we're talking specifically about what an elder should be like in order to be qualified to lead the church, this is, these characteristics, this list is for everybody. Like name one thing on this list that you could be like, um, I don't think I should have to do that. Like, there's nothing on this list where you would be like, I don't, I don't think that matters for me. Um, it doesn't matter if I'm hospitable. It doesn't, it doesn't matter if I'm violent. It doesn't matter if I'm a drunk. It doesn't matter if I'm quarrelsome. It doesn't matter if I'm a lover of money. All of these qualifications are clarified in other places in the New Testament as things that every believer should adhere to and grow into. So as much as we're aiming at uh, addressing the text within its immediate context and expositing the text in terms of what, it, what qualifies a man for eldership. If you're a woman or a man that's not qualified or, any, or a child or anybody else and you're thinking, I can't be an elder so this doesn't apply to me, this directly applies to you because all of these things are the quality and characteristics of Jesus that all of us should be striving for. So as we address what it means to be an elder, always keep in mind, this is me. Even if I'm not meant to be an elder, this is for me and my relationship with Jesus just as much. So though we are addressing qualifications for elder, we're ultimately addressing what it means to be sanctified into maturity in Christ. So we get to verse four, and Paul says, he, speaking of the elder, must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? This qualification is rather simple to understand. Um, if a man is incapable of managing his own family, then he certainly isn't qualified to manage more than his family. Right? Just as you, if you, if you were a, an owner of a company... And you had an employee who was lazy, didn't show up on time. They did poor quality of work. They were just a, an, all around a, a poor employee. Would you promote them to manager? No, because they can't even manage what they've all, the responsibilities they've already been given. And because of that, you wouldn't give them more responsibility. You'd want them to prove that they can handle the responsibility they've already been given. That's the same principle that Paul is employing here when he's talking about an elder. And one important note on this qualification because he's talking about this elder being a father, right? Because the, the qualification here is that he keeps his children submissive. So one important note on this qualification is that an elder does not have to be a parent. 
Okay, this is, Paul's not teaching that you have to be a dad and you have to have kids and they have to be submissive. Paul just recognizes, and God obviously recognizes the reality that many or most men have children. They have wives and they have children, and therefore how they manage their own home is important. And their parenting reveals what kind of man they are in terms of their own discipline. We'll talk about that in a second. But the difficulty with this qualification is that much of it is subjective. Like meaning it is difficult to measure what, a, what, what good household management looks like. So I'll give you two extremes. If a man has a submissive and quiet wife, which we talked about earlier in chapter two, and he has seemingly perfectly obedient children. We know no child is perfect, but seemingly perfectly obedient children. Then, you know, it wouldn't be difficult to look at that man and assume that he meets this qualification. And the opposite is also obvious. If there is a man with a contentious and vexing and difficult wife who's always complaining and arguing and causing trouble and his children are violent and cruel and nasty, then it wouldn't be difficult to dismiss that man for eldership. So those are two extremes, right? But the subjective nature of this qualification lies in between those two extremes. So the question is, like, what, where on that spectrum, between those two extremes, where on that spectrum does a man suddenly become disqualified and suddenly become qualified? And Paul doesn't give us perfect clarity on that question. So one of the things that is ultimately required is that the existing leadership or elders of the church and the body itself is filled with the Holy Spirit and discerning each other, being able to measure a man according to the word of God as he manages his own household and to be able to make a determination as to whether he's qualified or not. Now, that's a little difficult because we don't have so much clarity about what exactly uh, a submissive child looks like. How often do they have to be submissive? What if they're not submissive uh, at times? What is the measure of a submissive child? That's really the question. What is the measure of a submissive child? If a child is insubordinate once, is that man suddenly disqualified? If a, a man who is already an elder has a child and that child disobeys his father just once, does he have to step down from eldership? If that were the case, there would likely be no elders in the church because we know that all humans are sinful, but children are even more so prone to sin because Proverbs twenty two fifteen says, folly is bound up in the heart of a child. Now, I just wanna, I wanna counter that for a second too. As much as, I mean, we look at kids and we like, we know Kids have foolishness in them. And we know what it takes to work foolishness out of children as adults, right? And, and at the same time, there is a, a softness and a, like Jesus talks about, he says he, he demands that belief in him be like the faith of a child. Because just as much as children are, are more prone to sin because they have folly and foolishness bound up in their heart that needs to be driven out of them, they also are more prone to belief, because they haven't been tainted by the heinous reality of the world. And they haven't been, had as much time to practice their sin that hardens their heart. So it's kind of a dual reality with children. 
that they are, it's harder for them to be obedient, but in some ways it's easier. But what Paul is addressing is really the difficulty of a child to become obedient on their own, meaning they need a good father. So though there is definitely a standard of submission, of submissive obedience that must be seen in the children of an elder, I think what is more important to this qualification is really how the man manages his children who are naturally in their foolishness going to sin and going to disobey, right? It is the nature of children to disobey. They're going to sin. They're going to disobey. They're going to do foolishness. I mean, think about it. As a parent, when your kids do something that frustrates you or annoys you to so much and then we, we get worked up and then we yell at them, hey, stop it. Oh, we get mad at our children. We yell at them. Why are we yelling at them? Because we're annoyed that their sin disrupted something in our hearts, lives, or mind. And so we get aggravated and we yell at them. When the reality is, as parents, we should be in every single moment aware and ready, aware that our children are going to sin and ready to correct that sin. The attitude of a parent should be, I know my child is not righteous disciplining my child is their means to righteousness. So I expect poor behavior. And when it happens, I get the joy, not the aggravation, not the annoyance, not the frustration, but the joy of correcting my child with biblical discipline that leads them to righteousness and forces that sinful foolishness out of their heart and replaces it with the righteousness of Christ. Meaning I have to teach my kids and train my kids and be dedicated to my kids and listen to my kids and communicate with my kids and, 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 and praise God for them and to them when they do righteousness and discipline and correct them when they don't. And all of that is hard work. It's 24 hours a day. It's not easy. And the reality is it's so hard that most parents just kind of balk on half the job because it's easier just to dismiss your responsibilities as a parent, kind of check out half the day, let your kids do whatever they want, train themselves in their unrighteousness, and then later they behave inappropriately and disrupts your, your day and frustrates you, and then you're upset with your children and it creates chaos in the home. That's poor management of the house, which would disqualify a man for eldership. Whereas the discipline of a godly man is expressed in the way he disciplines his children into godliness. So that is why children have parents. I mean, I'll tell you this. Anger, frustration, annoyance, those kinds of thoughts and feelings, those, those feelings and thoughts in that category of just aggravating realities in life, those feelings that you experience in life happen because of one reason. And that reason is unmet expectations. Anger is the product of an unmet expectation. Frustration is the product of an unmet expectation. Aggravation, annoyance, it's the product of an unmet expectation. You have an expectation for your children, they don't meet it. Then you get angry. You have an expectation for your spouse, they don't meet it, you get angry. So what is the key to avoiding those feelings? Well, it's clear. Communicate your expectations. 
And then those in your life who you've communicated that expectation to, you should have the discipline to enforce that expectation. And you should expect yourself that they won't, because they're children, follow your expectation that you communicated. So it's more about what you expect from your children. And if you can understand what a child is, it will be much easier to manage them without being frustrated or angry because your expectations are well managed. Your children are going to sin. They're going to disobey you. They're going to be defiant. They're going to have bad attitudes. That's not okay, but it's going to happen. That's why you're in the picture. So if you expect that and then create for yourself not only the expectation that they will behave that way, but the expectation that when they do, I will treat it as an opportunity to discipline them. And remember, discipline is good. It's not punishment. Punishment and discipline are not the same thing always. The discipline is correcting behavior for their good. Same reason God disciplines us. Why does God discipline us? Because we are his sons and daughters whom he loves. And and, in Hebrews 12 says that if you are not under the discipline of the Lord, then you are an illegitimate child and not a part of God's family. So if you are being disciplined, that is God showing you, I love you enough to, to whip you into shape. I love you enough to transform you out of your flesh and into Christ's likeness. I love you enough to chisel off the fat, to chisel off the hard parts, to work on your heart, to develop your mind, to change your perspective, to teach you the truth, to to reprove you in sin, to challenge you to, to work out of sin. God loves us enough to change who we were into who we should be in Christ. That's love. And that's, that's love that is revealed in discipline. And, and then in Hebrews 12, the author also states that it, that's, that's exactly what God does because it's exactly what your earthly fathers do. And then he says that your earthly, when your earthly fathers do this, this discipline to you, it's unpleasant in the moment. But later it produces the fruit of righteousness for those who are what? Trained by it. What that tells us is that discipline is not punishment. Discipline is training. You're training your children in righteousness. And if you can manage the expectation that they're going to do unrighteousness, and when they do, I'm going to respond gently and under control, and I'm going to take them and I'm going to pull them aside and I'm going to create a moment of love where I love my child by speaking to them about the sin they just committed, the righteousness that needs to be done, and whatever discipline needs to take place in order for that behavior to be corrected. And you're not just doing behavioral modification because we don't care about behavioral modification. We don't want just children who do what they're told. We want children whose hearts are drawn to Christ. So when you discipline your children, it's not, it's not about just getting them to behave. You know, that, that's, so, so if your child does something they shouldn't do, right? And they, they got a bad attitude and, and, and you say, hey, go do this thing for me. And they go, oh, fine. And you go, hey, don't talk to me that way. All you've taught them is that behavior is not acceptable. That's all. You didn't show them Jesus. You didn't show them God. You didn't teach them the gospel. And it wasn't discipline. It was, it was corrective punishment so that their behavior would change but you haven't reached their heart and if you don't get to their heart the behavior change will either mean nothing or their behavior will change and it will still mean nothing because what does god care about their heart not just their actions 
There's plenty of people in the world who are morally good and totally depraved of Jesus Christ. That earns them nothing. So we aren't, we aren't trying to correct our children's behavior. We are trying to correct our children's hearts. We want to draw their heart to God. So when we discipline our children, we pull them aside. We communicate. This was sin. The Bible tells you that we just did a sin. That sin offends a holy God. And God commands me as your parent to discipline you. So now my obedience is on the line. If I don't discipline you, child, then I'm disobeying God. So I'm going to discipline you according to this According to the word of God, and this is what the discipline is going to be, and this is why I'm disciplining you. You've got sin and foolishness bound up in your heart, and it's being revealed in this behavior you just did. And I want to correct that behavior, but first I want to address your heart, because I want to have to not tell you to do that anymore, because I want to purge that wickedness out of your heart and replace it with the righteousness of Jesus Christ that is shown to you in the gospel. And this is how God is loving you, by giving you a father who gets to love you by talking this way. And then... When I do that with my kids and then I do whatever discipline is required, I immediately, and I know I've told you guys this a million times, but I immediately embrace them because that is what the loving father does to us. His discipline is always present with his compassion and presence. He is never punishes and then leaves you alone. Sending your kid to their room as discipline would be like God being like, get out of my church. I'm not saying there's not a time or a place for something like that. But think about how a good shepherd disciplines his child or how the good shepherd disciplines his church. It's in love. It's done with mercy and grace, but it works. And we need to do that with our children so that their hearts are correct, not just their behavior. So we expect disobedience from children because we know they haven't been trained in righteousness as long as you have been, or the parents have been. Paul even says this of himself in 1 Corinthians 13, 11. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. So how do children give up childish ways? They learn. Specifically, they learn from their mistakes. And who teaches them how to learn and what to learn from their mistakes? Their father. Now, their mother, too, Obviously, In fact, I would say when the children are smaller and younger, more so even the mother, because the mothers tend to be in the nuclear family. The mother tends to be the one who spends more time with the children when they're younger than the father does. But still, even the mother and her discipline and parenting to those children is simply an extension of the father's authority in the home. Just like Jesus' authority on earth is an extension of the father's authority in heaven. So when Jesus comes to earth, he doesn't say, I, I, he didn't say, I came to do whatever I want to do because I'm in charge here. He said, I came to do only the will of him who sent me. So, and we see this comparison between Christ submitting to the Father. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul makes that very same comparison. Just as Christ submits to the Father, so the wife submits to her husband. And just as Christ's purpose on earth is to fulfill the will of the Father on earth, so the wife's purpose in the marriage and in the family is to fulfill the authority and the, the, the will of the Father in the home, which means the dad is carrying a lot of weight on his shoulder. He has to sanctify his wife, that's Ephesians chapter 5, by washing her with the water of the word of God so she would be presented to Christ blameless and holy and spotless. So he's got to do that. 
And in doing so, he will also be teaching his wife how to discipline the children in a biblical and God-honoring way. And in doing that, the father and the mother are united as one in disciplining the children. The children see a united front in the way that they're treated and the way that they behave. And so all of that responsibility falls on the shoulders of the man in the house. And now the mother has authority over her children, but she expresses the authority of the father to the children in a way that sanctifies the children into righteousness. And if she doesn't do that well, that's on the man. That's ultimately on the man. This is why the man has to be equipped in managing his own household well. When a man does this well, Paul says that what he's doing is dignified. I mean, think about what you're doing. When you raise your children this way, when you train your children in their sin, out when they sin, and you, you discipline them, and you train them from sin into righteousness, what are you ultimately teaching them? You're teaching your child to submit to you as their commanded to do in Ephesians chapter 6 and in the Ten Commandments. So you're teaching your children to submit to you. Why is that important? Is it so that you get all the glory? No. Why is it important that your children learn to submit to you? So that as children, they will develop a good and godly and biblical, biblically healthy practice of submission to the proper authority so that as they mature in their faith, they will easily and joyfully and biblically and faithfully submit to Christ. By teaching your children to submit to you, you're teaching your children to submit to Christ because Christ demands that they submit to you. And if they can practice that in a real practical way in the home, then it will be a much easier task as they get older to submit to Christ. So this is, this is about more than just your children behaving while they live in your home. And when they turn 18, they can go do whatever they want. No, I want to send my kids into the world like Jesus. I want my kids to be as much like Christ as possible when they go because I'm not gonna have the same influence when they leave my home. So I only have you know maybe 18 years to really pour my heart and soul into my children in a day-to-day basis that can sanctify them into Christ-likeness. And that's a hard task to do that every day. I mean, any parent in here knows that's not easy. I mean, you want to take days off, weeks off. I mean, it's just, it's exhausting, right? So, but, it, but, there's, but when you see it work, isn't it the most wonderfully joyful thing in the world? I mean, think about it. In Proverbs 31, it talks about how joyful it is for a parent to see their children rise up and praise them. Only a child who's disciplined in righteousness with wisdom can do that. And so, so if a man can't train his child into submission to Christ, then he won't be able to train the church and the adults of the body to submission to Christ. So he has to be practiced at that discipline in his home. And there needs to be evidence that that practice is happening before he is qualified to do the same with the church. 
And if a man does this well, Paul says what he's doing is dignified, meaning he operates in a way that is honorable. He makes himself worthy to be followed. Why? Because he is following Jesus. What this qualification mostly reveals in the man, so this is important, listen to this. What this qualification mostly reveals in this man is his own level of discipline. An undisciplined man will have undisciplined children. And the undisciplined nature of his children will reveal his own lack of godly disciplines. God does not want undisciplined men leading his church because leading the church through fires requires tough, unburnable skin. And the only way to develop tough skin is to endure tough things or to be trained by the endurance that comes with God's training us in righteousness or his discipline. And that comes from being a disciplined man and that training produces a disciplined man. So the church needs disciplined men to lead and their own discipline is revealed in their children's discipline. And the second half of Proverbs twenty-two fifteen that I just read that says folly is bound up in the heart of a child, it goes on to say, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. All children need discipline. Just, and, and when I say that, I mean all children, meaning not only children like small people, like five-year-olds, but God's children too. All children need discipline. And in order to receive discipline, they need a disciplined parent. But this qualification, I still think it's hard to measure, right? It's difficult. I mean, how do you evaluate somebody's parenting? And isn't that a little unfair to walk around evaluating everyone's parenting? Like, well, you're not a very good parent. Well, you're an okay parent. You know, that's that. But but this is an important evaluation to make as a church when we're considering certain men for eldership. So if a man's going to put himself forward for eldership, then he is going to be put on the chopping block. His life is going to be examined. And that's a good thing, which is why he has to be, as we learned last week, above reproach. But still, this is difficult to measure because each child is different and each child is at a different stage in life, right? And kids are different and they behave differently and disobedience and obedience look differently in a different child's life. I mean, you could have a man who has a very disobedient five-year-old, but he has a very submissive 15-year-old. And that should tell you a lot because does that man's disobedient five-year-old mean he's disqualified? Well, maybe, but also not necessarily. Like his older child had 10 more years to learn his father's discipline. So maybe we'd look at that 15-year-old and that five-year-old and go, well, look at what the father did in those 10 years to make this 15-year-old the way he is. Let's believe that that same activity is happening in the life of that five-year-old. Like that, so you can see how it's like, well, how, how obedient does this five-year-old have to be? And how disobedient does he have to be if he's qualified or not? It's very difficult to measure because we're not giving exact clarity on what that obedience looks like. So it is more about how the man handles his children. It's more about how that man handles his children than it is about how the children behave. As we expect a certain degree of lacking submission and a lack of obedience from children. So I believe... Really, it's more about the trajectory of the children's submission than it is about their current state of submission, of submission, which shows how the father implements his discipline. 
And again, there are several other factors to consider that makes this a difficult qualification to measure. And I could just go here addressing every hypothetical scenario and situation, but that's too difficult. And so the church needs discernment and needs the spirit. And you have to trust the sitting elders who are already leading the church to be able to discern what, whether that man is qualified or disqualified based on how he parents. And one last thing about verse 5 that Paul ex- explains is he calls the church God's church. I was alluding to this earlier. That's an important statement to make while explaining the qualifications for a man to manage his own family. Because it might seem like Paul is saying, hey, just like the father manages his home, so he, this, this elder is managing the church. And, and so to clear up that confusion that it might seem like Paul is saying the, the elders are the fathers to the church. Paul addresses that and calls it God's church. It's not Mark's church. It's not Brian's church. It's not your church. It's God's church. Now, we speak in terms like it's our church. I say it's my church just as much as it's your church. And you can say it's your church just as much as it's my church. And what we mean is that it's ours in the sense that we belong to it. But the owner of the church is Christ. He's the head of the church. God is the father to the church, not the elders. They have a father-like responsibility to the church, but Paul clarifies that it's God's. And so this is why good elders will always lead the church according to God's word and God's word alone. Now we get to verse six and Paul says, he must not be a recent convert Or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. So this qualification refers to the maturity of a man who is qualified to lead God's church. New converts are not mature in their faith. We all know that because they can't be because they haven't been a believer long enough. They have not had enough time to face trials or experiences to learn the importance of endurance, nor have they gained the wisdom required that is is developed through making mistakes, um, learning their own sin, crushing their sin, long-term adherence to the word and prayer and learning how to submit to God through various experiences in life. That kind of maturing takes time. Hence the requirement that his faith has been tested and once tested, proven genuine and tested by the Lord, not by the people. If a new believer is given this role, he'll likely be tempted with pride. And pride because pride comes from having authority that outmeasures his character development. Right? So if you give somebody who isn't equipped to handle a certain level of authority, but you give them that level of authority, they will abuse it. They will misuse it. They will misunderstand it. And they will harm the people whom they have authority over because they don't know how to wield that authority in maturity because they haven't been trained in maturity. They haven't matured into more of a Christ-like character. This is the same principle as the last qualification of a man who manages his household well. The man who manages his household well and this man who's not a new convert but his faith has been tested over time, they both have learned the importance of God pruning each of us by his discipline into Christ's likeness, which comes from 
many experiences of pain and suffering and sacrifice and experiences of God's blessing and grace and mercy and compassion, all characteristics required of God's leaders because they are primary traits revealed in Christ himself. And ultimately, that's what the the elders in the church should be like. They should be men who look like Jesus to the body, who act like Jesus to the body, who shepherd like Jesus to the body, who love the bride of Christ the way Christ loves the bride of Christ, who teaches the bride of Christ the way Jesus teaches the bride, who cares for them and listens to them and understands them and, and, and cherishes them and rebukes them and reproves them and corrects them, but encourages them and lifts them up and prays for them and, and, and is thankful to God for them and, and interacts with them and builds relationships with them and, and gets involved with them and does fellowship with them and, and serves them and is willing to die for them. That's what a good shepherd does because that's what Christ does. So he can't be a new convert because he needs to mature into Christ's likeness that enables him to be that kind of shepherd. If a new convert is placed into eldership, Paul says he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Arrogance will prevail in an undisciplined man who's given a role that exceeds his character. Arrogance will prevail in an undisciplined man who is given a role that exceeds his character. When Paul says falls into the condemnation of the devil, he doesn't mean that the devil will capture him. Instead, Paul is referring to the very sin that captured the devil. The devil's unbelief was exposed in his pride that led him to rebel against God. And that pride led to his condemnation. Or his judgment. So also the church needs to protect new converts by not allowing them to step into a role where they'll be tempted with pride due to their lack of spiritual development and sanctification. So that in their pride they do not fall into the same sin that led to the devil's condemnation. Another way to say it is like this. Why would a man who is equal in condemnation with the devil be in church leadership? Or why would you put a man who could easily fall into the same condemnation that the devil's in, why would you put him in church leadership? That's not fair to the church, and it's certainly not fair to that man. So the standing elders have to have enough wisdom to know that this man's not ready for that responsibility. It could hurt him as well as the church. It's not fitting for him or for the body. So this new convert needs to be disciplined. He needs time to become disciplined by God and by the church, disciplined in a positive and encouraging and growing way. As all believers need discipleship, that's why we do discipleship here. That's why we're in the world all the time. That's why we have like five Bible studies every week. And that's why I do one-on-one discipleship with men. And that's why we do counseling, so we can invest in people's lives and, and help them grow and understand the Word of God so that you can be disciplined by the Word of God, taught to you by church leaders in a way that can sanctify you into Christ's likeness. And I see that happening in our church all over the place. And it's a beautiful reality to see. It's a joy to be a part of. Verse 7. Paul says, Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace and to the snare of the devil. Now this time, 
He's talking about the devil trying to capture. Because he calls it the snare of the devil. The devil's going to snare and he's going to fall into it in disgrace if he's not well thought of by outsiders. This text is not about what outsiders believe about us, okay? It simply refers to how he is respected in the community of unbelievers. And this does not mean that unbelievers are, must like, necessarily like him or agree with his moral and theological positions. Because we can't expect the world that doesn't know Christ to have the same standard that we have. What he's talking about is that the man who is qualified for eldership has, that he is unimpeachable to the believing community, that they have no biblical claim to argue against him, that their arguments and claims against him are things they don't agree with, but yet they are biblical. Even if, even if they don't agree with the man, even if the unbelieving community doesn't agree with a, an elder, that they, they can recognize that that elder maintains continuity in what he preaches. And it's up to the church, not the unbelieving community, it's up to the church to decide if what that man preaches is biblical. Now it's important to note that Paul is not making an argument that how an unbeliever views the elder is the determining factor as to whether or not they're qualified. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 4, Paul's talking about lawsuits, okay? It's important that we understand that, it's, that Paul's not giving the unbelieving world authority in the church to determine who gets to be an elder. And we see this principle revealed to us in 1 Corinthians 6. And Paul says, and he's talking about lawsuits, so it's a different subject, but the principle is the same. And he says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? The principle that Paul's teaching us is don't give the authority of the church, which is the authority of God placed in the men who lead the church, to the world. Don't give that authority to the world. Which is why Paul's saying, don't sue each other. You're placing, your, you, have, you have the authority, the ultimate authority in all of the universe is not the government, it is the word of God. And we adhere to the word of God. And the church is the only organism or people in the world that adheres to the greatest authority that exists. And so Paul's making an argument, don't give up that authority by submitting yourself to the world and their judgments that are not biblical. They don't have Christ. They can't judge appropriately. You do, and you should be able to judge your own problems. You should be able to manage your own situations. You should not have to take it to the courts. You should be able to manage it within the church. And that's the same principle that we get here, that Paul is not saying, let the world decide who should be an elder. We would never do that. Instead, he's, he's saying, how is this man viewed by the world? And there's an important reason why. Paul is not calling for perfect respect from unbelievers as that would be impossible. And it'd be impossible because we know that the, the man who's an elder ought to be a godly man, right? Well, 2 Timothy 3.12 says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Well, who's going to be doing the persecution? It's going to be the world. It's going to be unbelievers. 
It's going to be also false converts who call themselves Christians. So why would the church submit its direction to the world that intends to persecute them? Obviously, Paul is not weighing this qualification as if the unbeliever has the ultimate say in who qualifies for eldership. He's simply telling us that the man who's qualified for elder is one who is irreproachable to unbelievers in light of the word of God. So it's not even so much about his reputation, although that is absolutely a part of this. It's what is his reputation in light of the word of God? Because if we do what we think is biblical and that opposes the way the world thinks, they could look at the church and say that man or that church or those people or whatever are bad people, but we would know what we're doing is righteousness and it might produce a persecution or a reviling toward us. If that happens, that wouldn't make a particular man unqualified for eldership because we'd be doing what's righteous and we expect a recoil from the world in some scenarios. The point is that he has an in with the unbelieving community, that he has opportunities because he builds good relationships outside of the church. He has opportunities to share the gospel with the world so they could build the kingdom. That's the real point. Paul has his mindset on the gospel. The gospel is what's at stake here. Spreading the gospel, building God's kingdom. The greatest growth that churches in America see is not growth. It's, It's what I would call church growth, not kingdom growth. It's church growth. People move from one community to another. They're looking for a new church and they find a new church. That's fantastic. People leave one church and go to another church and there's good reasons for that. And so what happens in churches is the church grows or a particular body, local body might grow, but it tends to be that it's more like moving pieces on a chessboard. These believers go from here to here. They move from state to state or from area to area or they go from church to church. Maybe that church is in in line with the same vision of that family, so they go to a different one. And there's plenty of wonderful reasons why people move to different churches and that's great and that's God's will just as much but still that's not growth the kingdom doesn't grow your church grows and it makes you feel like oh we're doing things right it's like that that's not ever in the bible numerical growth is never in the bible a measurement of healthy godliness how many people were at the cross of jesus three Who is the most healthy, godly man you've ever heard of? Jesus. He didn't have a church of 5,000 people. He had a church of 5,000 people, quote unquote church. 10,000 people following him around. Feed us, heal us, do miracles. We love you. Oh, I'm so hungry. Here, I'll just make, miraculously make bread and fish multiply. Oh, you're the best, Jesus. Oh, he's going to die for this? Yeah, I'm going to leave. And they bail on him because it's hard. We expect, we, it's, it's not church growth when existing believers move to different places. We don't care about church growth. The Bible doesn't care about church growth. It just doesn't. It, God and his word and we should care about the growth of God's kingdom. We want kingdom growth. We want unbelievers to have the, the blinders removed from their eyes. The blinders that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4 
are, are the, put on their eyes by the enemy. We want to remove them with the light of Christ, is what Paul, uh, Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 4. So it's our desire um, to, to see unbelievers awaken from their sleep, or a more biblical way to say it is brought to life from their death. And then, I mean, think about what, what's the Great Commission say? Go and make disciples, teach, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Spirit and teaching them to obey my commands. There are four verbs in that text in the Great Commission. Go, make, baptize, teach. We tend to think of the Great Commission as an evangelical verse, a uh, text or command. Like the, we use... The Great Commission as the ultimate text for, you know, go and spread the gospel. Evangelism, evangelism, evangelism. Well, evangelism is in that text because there's a command to go, implying that go to those who don't know Christ and lead them to Christ. That's an implication. But the primary command in that text, those four verbs, the primary command is make Make disciples. That's the goal. Make disciples. And so they have to believe before they can be made or grow in their discipleship. So they have to become a disciple by believing in Christ. And then Paul commands, or not Paul, sorry, Jesus commands at the end of that, first of all, make the disciple. How do you make the disciple? Okay, so that that verb, make, is the only imperative verb in that text. And then you have three other verbs, go, baptize, and teach. And those three verbs are verbs that support the primary activity of making a disciple. And so um, it would be similar to be like uh, telling my son, like, get me a coffee. And he says, well, how do I do that? So the primary command is get me a coffee. So go get is that command. Well, how do I get the coffee? You stand up. That's a verb. You walk. That's a verb. Fill a cup with water. That's a verb. Brew the coffee. That's a verb. Bring it to me. That's a verb. All those other verbs support the primary desire and activity that I want to see done. Get me coffee, right? Does that make sense? And the same thing in the Great Commission that the word make is the primary activity. Make disciples. Well, how do I make disciples? You got to go get them first. And then once you get them, the implication in, from Jesus is that they believe in the gospel because he says baptize them. So get them. They share the gospel with them. They believe. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. And then what does discipleship look like? Teach them to obey my commands. That's a lifetime activity. That's what discipleship is. That's why we do this together. That's my priority in your life is, is, is I want to disciple you in the word and teach you to obey his commands. And so that's the objective and that's the priority and that's what we're trying to do. And so that activity of making disciples requires that the body of Christ go into the world with one objective. I want to see people become like Christ. And instead, in America, we have this perception of evangelism, which is if I could just walk up to somebody and say, hey, have you heard about Jesus? No. Oh, do you want to? Sure. Yeah. So I'm going to pray this prayer with you. And if you just repeat after me, you're saved. Okay, dear Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I'm a sinner. I believe in you. Amen. Amen. And then you're like, woo, I got someone saved, man. Have a good life. And you leave. And that person never gets discipled. Who knows if that salvation is even genuine? You'll never know. That's not what evangelism is. That's not what discipleship is. 
Discipleship is relationship. It's pouring into someone's life. This is why the elder has to have a good relationship with unbelievers in the world. Because it's not just about walking up to strangers and sharing the gospel with them. It's about investing yourself into the life of other people. And, and becoming friends with unbelievers. Yes, friends with unbelievers. Jesus was criticized harshly by the Pharisees for being friends with sinners and tax collectors and bad people. And he says, I didn't come for the healthy. I came for people who need life and don't have it. I came for the unsaved. That should be our objective. Yes, do we absolutely need to be heavily involved in the body of Christ growing together? Absolutely. But should we have a life with unbelievers outside the church? Yes. Pour into people. Build a relationship with them. Go golfing with them. Watch movies with them. Be their friends. Build a real relationship. Let them see Christ live and work out in him, himself in your life. So that their salvation isn't dependent on you. Well, will you please say this phrase with me? Let's just repeat this, this Christianese phrase that we just kind of created on our own. And if you pray it when I pray it, then you're saved. That's called easy believism. If I just repeat this phrase, I'm saved. That's not what we want. We don't want people who just said they're saved because they said a prayer and then they never go to church and they never grow and they never know Christ and they never learn and they never are sanctified. That's not salvation. We want people who love Jesus. That's what building the kingdom is about. Being involved in the world of unbelievers, having relationships that are fruitful and meaningful. That person may never believe in Jesus, but you are still doing what God called you to do. And, the, and you better be praying for that person too, all the time. Praying that God would use you in a way that would reveal to them their need for Christ. And this is why that elder, if he's going to do that, has to be irreproachable. To the world, so that that friend can't go. Well, you call yourself a Christian, but you do this, this, and that. I see your life; it's garbage. You call yourself a Christian. Well, like obviously, you you build a relationship with someone that closely. They're going to see sin in your life. So, how do you respond to it? Like that tells you everything, right? Humble, broken, repentant, hating your sin, confessing your sin, even to your unbelieving friend, like you're right, that's sin and it's wretched and I hate it and I want Christ to destroy it because I want to be like him. Like show your unbelieving friends what Jesus looks like so that we can build his kingdom. If we grew numerically because that's happening, that's what I call the church. That is called church growth. That's, that's church growth. That's kingdom growth. That's meaningful growth. If God sees it fit to bring people who are already believers to our church because he's got some other plan in mind, who am I to argue with God's perfect will? I accept that joyfully. More people to help us do the very thing we're talking about, building the kingdom, fantastic. But don't be confused and think that that's kingdom growth because it's not. So it is imperative that an elder who is to be like a picture of Christ to the church has those kinds of relationships with unbelievers and can, he may not lead anyone to the Lord, but can and has opportunities. So in all these 14 qualifications for elder, there lies underneath it all and in it all the perfect character of Jesus so regardless of whether you are a man pursuing eldership or you're a woman or you're a child or all of us 
should strive for this kind of biblical living because it honors God and it is your sacrificial offering of worship to him that pleases, pleases our God and satisfies our soul in him by encouraging us in our confidence of hope in Christ. And just as we would expect to hold our elders accountable to these traits, so also we should hold each other accountable to these traits. And, and, and to do that in love and in gentleness and in compassion and understanding with, a, with an aim at discipline that corrects us into Christ-likeness, not an aim at hurting each other. These qualifications are not meant to be abused by measuring each other's holiness against each other. Oh, I'm way more holy than he is. That's not what these qualifications are meant for. They're meant for self-reflection. And they're meant for the church to reflect on as they evaluate a man for eldership. And you, all of you, all of us, should take these qualifications, instead of measuring others against them, look at ourselves. Where, where do I measure up on this, in these qualifications? In what ways do I need to grow? And if you don't measure up, which I would imagine many of us will feel like we don't measure up, if you don't measure up, the res- response should not be, oh, I'm just a piece of garbage. It's like, no, I'm excited for the ways in which I have not reached perfection Because that just means more work of God in my life. There's more of Christ for me to get. I'm already positionally, I have everything I need in Christ. I am already positioned as perfect in Christ by God. I've been justified. I have been sanctified and glorified. It's already sealed and done, Ephesians chapter 1. But my experience in this life is to live out and experience that sanctification, to recognize the ways in which I'm not perfect and watch God work on me and sanctify me and grow me and challenge me and discipline me. That means there's more Jesus to be had. And if you love Jesus, that ought to be super exciting to you. If you love Jesus, I'm telling you, you haven't had enough yet. Like that's a super cool truth. You already, with the amount of Jesus you've experienced, You love him and you can't have enough of him. Just imagine how much better it's going to be when you get more. Like, isn't that a sweet, awesome reality? I love my imperfection, not because I love sin. I hate sin. But like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, I'll boast all the more in my weaknesses so that the power and strength of Christ would be manifest in me. The worse I am, the more work God has to do on me and the more growth I get in Christ, the more I get to experience Jesus. So recognizing the ways in which I fall short, that shouldn't be a negative experience. It should be like, okay, I've got sin. I need work. Go to town, God. Chisel away. Show me Jesus. Fill me up. Give me more Christ. How, what is he like? And what am I like? And where do I lack Christ-likeness? Bridge the gap, God. Sanctify me. I want more Christ in my life. I want more of you in my life. Fill me with your spirit. Sanctify me. Chisel my heart. Put me through the tough things. Make me endure. Cause me to sacrifice. If it means suffering, then it means suffering. But that's what Christ went through. So I will sacrifice for you. And Lord, along the way, if you could just dump a plethora of blessings on me and grace and mercy and love, which I know he will do because he says he promises to do that, then even better. And that's the Christian life. So as you evaluate yourself, don't get down. As you measure yourself against these qualifications, don't beat yourself up. Look at this and go, any way in which I don't measure up just means more Jesus in my future. And that's an awesome, 
joyful reality that all of us should be excited about. And that, you know what, for me, so this is just me, and I'm not saying this has to be you, although I, I would like it to be you. That makes me go, I want to be at Bible study more. I want to be at more Bible studies. I want to be in more life groups. I want to be in more discipleship. I need more men speaking into my life. I need more of the word. I need more prayer. I need more sanctification. I need more, 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 because the more I get, the more my sin is revealed, and the more my sin is revealed, the, the, the lesser I become and the greater Christ becomes. That's what John the Baptist said. I must decrease, he must increase. John chapter 3. I must decrease, he must increase. And the way for you to decrease so that he increases in your life is to be confronted by the truth of his word. To be in relationship and communication with God daily, regularly, constantly, and not just alone, but with the body of Christ too. Because God has put you in each other's lives on purpose to be the means by which he sanctifies you so you get more Jesus. Amen. That is an awesome truth. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your word. We just pray that you would continue to sanctify us and grow us in Christ-likeness. Any ways in which we don't measure up, show it to us and let us find great joy in our lack of maturity in Christ because we know that's, that means you're gonna work. It might be hard, it might hurt, it might be something we have to endure, but you can and will carry us through. That's our faith at work, knowing that you will do that. So we depend on you and we trust in you and we lay ourselves at your feet and we just say do your work God do your work because we want more Jesus I pray this week as these people go that your word and your truth would stick to their heart and sink into their heart and take root and grow seedlings of Christ likeness in their heart and you would water those truths God and they would grow We love your word, we love you, we love your son. We thank you for your spirit who teaches us and shows us and draws us to you. Pray that you would bless your church and your people as they go. In whatever way you choose to bless them this week, we submit to your authority and your sovereignty and we know that you will do that which is good for us and glorifying for you. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.